Many people throughout world history have claimed to be God. Monarchs like the pharaohs or the emperors of Japan. Cult leaders like David Koresh and Jim Jones. Serial killers like Charles Manson and Shoko Asahara. But even though this claim has been made many times throughout world history, when we still hear today someone saying, I am God, we find that claim to be innately shocking and disturbing, right? Because we figure if somebody claims to be God, that is evidence of insanity, that they have delusions of grandeur. And so we worry for their followers that things aren't going to end well for them. We worry that when things come crashing down for this man and his movement, that, that innocent bystanders will be hurt. If you came in here today and said, well, you know, I just met a man who told me that he was God and I'm going to give up everything to follow him, we would be pretty worried for you, right? We would intervene in that situation, right? And yet, today we have come here to worship Jesus Christ, who we confess to be both truly God and truly man. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. These are some amazing claims that Jesus made about himself, are they not? Openly, unapologetically claiming to be God in the flesh. And Jesus didn't just make these claims. He expected his followers to live like they were true. We saw a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says God's judgment is coming, and if you want to withstand that judgment, you've got to build your whole life upon him. So last week, Jesus says, follow me even though it's going to cost you everything. He says, in the passage we looked at last week, when you follow me, your obligations to me outweigh every other duty and allegiance that you have in life. So here's a man claiming to be God, telling us to give up everything out of worship and loyalty and love to him. Why is this not crazy? Why should we worship Jesus as God? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus' claims are true. He is God the Son in human flesh. And so he is entitled to all of our love and worship and obedience. But how can we know that Jesus' claims are true? Well, unlike the frauds I talked about a minute ago, the Lord Jesus was invested with all of the power of God and repeatedly demonstrated that power openly in front of thousands of people, in front of his friends and enemies alike. And we know about this not just from the writings of Jesus' followers, but we said a few weeks ago there are surviving writings that record basically the memories of Jesus' enemies, in which they admit Jesus performed amazing supernatural wonders. So friends, Jesus really did have amazing power. He did what only God can do, and thus he shows himself to be God. Now, the greatest evidence that Jesus is God is his resurrection. After Jesus died, hundreds of people later saw him alive again. They talked with him. They ate with him. Many of the people who saw Jesus risen from the dead had up to that point not believed in him. But seeing him alive changed their minds about Jesus. It changed their whole lives. They followed him even though it cost them much. It cost some of them their lives. 
In fact, most of the key witnesses to Jesus' resurrection went to deaths of torture and martyrdom because they could not deny what they had seen with their own eyes, that Jesus was alive. The resurrection of Jesus is an amazing historical fact, and if you've never looked into it, I would encourage you to examine it for yourself. But as Romans 1 says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But this morning, as we continue our look at the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to encounter three more amazing miracles performed by Jesus, in which Jesus does what only God can do. And thus, again, Jesus truly shows himself to actually be God, even as he is also truly human. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, through chapter 9, verse 8. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus shows himself to be God, first, because he has absolute authority over the natural world, second, because he has absolute authority over the supernatural world, and third, because he has absolute authority over guilt and forgiveness. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 8. As you're turning, let me remind you of where we are in this book. We're in a section in which Matthew is telling us about Jesus' miracles that he performed during his time in Galilee. And Matthew has arranged his presentation of Jesus' miracles, not chronologically, but topically. He's grouping Jesus' miracles by theme. So two weeks ago, we saw three miracles performed by Jesus that show that he has power over sickness and health. Today, we'll see three miracles that show that he is God. And in between these sections describing his miracles, Matthew has interwoven other material in which Jesus talks about discipleship. We saw an example of that last week. Now, you'll remember from last week's passage that Jesus has become very famous because of all of the miracles he's been performing. And so he's being followed by this huge crowd. And the crowd is dominating his time. It's restricting his personal space and movement. And so Jesus decides to take a break from this difficult situation. Matthew 8.18 says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Up to this point, Jesus is in the town of Capernaum, a small town on the Sea of Galilee, which is his home base. But now he decides to get in a boat and go across the sea to the other side to get a break from the crowd. And that's where we pick up today. As we come to our first point, in which we see that Jesus has absolute authority over the natural world. Look at verse 23. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So Jesus and his inner circle set off for their voyage across the Sea of Galilee. Now, despite its name, the Sea of Galilee is really just a large lake. And sailing across it wouldn't take very long. Under good conditions, this is maybe a two-hour trip. And ordinarily, this would be a very pleasant trip. Spending time with your friends on a boat with beautiful scenery after several long and hectic days. Sounds relaxing, right? But who is it that bore the brunt of these busy days? It's Jesus, who in his humanity is exhausted. So we read in Luke's account, as they sailed, he fell asleep. But while Jesus sleeps, something happens that catches his disciples off guard. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The geography around the Sea of Galilee is favorable for storms to whip up quite suddenly with little notice. But the disciples shouldn't be surprised by that. After all, four of them were professional fishermen who worked on the Sea of Galilee, right? So 
But this storm, to catch them off guard, must tell us this storm is much worse than what they were used to. In fact, this storm is going to send them and the other disciples into a panic. In fact, this storm is so violent that Matthew describes it not by using the normal Greek word for a storm, but by using a word that describes earthquakes usually. So the idea is this is a cataclysmic, this is a catastrophic storm. And being out on the open sea in an uncovered boat in this terrible storm was a terrifying situation. Verse 24 says the boat was being swamped by the waves. The storm was so violent that it was making waves that like towered over the boat. And as these waves hit the boat, water was coming into the boat. And so disaster seemed imminent. Verse 24, but he, but Jesus was asleep. You might wonder, how could Jesus sleep through this? But remember, he is absolutely exhausted. The crowds have been coming to him nonstop. Things have gotten so bad with the crowd. You might remember we said the last two weeks that Jesus at times had to stay in the wilderness. Because when he tried to go into a town, he would be immediately mobbed and couldn't do anything uh, to advance his ministry. He said to a man in last week's passage, I have nowhere to lay my head. Even the animals have more shelter than I do. Besides that, the crowds kept him up night after night asking for healing. And he was maintaining a busy preaching schedule. Jesus is exhausted and he is sleeping. And he is sleeping well. Nothing about this storm seems to disturb him. But the disciples are intensely disturbed. And so we read in verse 25, And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The disciples feel powerless. They are exposed. They're vulnerable. They think they're about to capsize and drown. So they're panicking. What can we do? And they think, well, if anybody can help us, surely it's Jesus. So they wake him up. Jesus, we're about to die. Help us. But in total contrast to their panic, look how Jesus responds. As he wakes up, he sees no urgency. He feels no panic. In fact, we're told here his first response isn't directed to the storm at all. Instead, he looks at his disciples and he rebukes them. Verse 26, and he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? We need to see two things here. First, when Jesus asks them why they are afraid, it isn't because the disciples have misinterpreted their situation. This isn't the kind of thing where the landlubber disciples are like, oh, it looks scary, but the veteran fisherman disciples are like, ah, I've seen worse. That's not what's going on here. Right? This storm was objectively quite dangerous. Matthew has gone out of his way to use language that makes that very clear. So when Jesus asks them, why are you afraid? It's not because the situation isn't serious. It is serious. And yet, Jesus still thinks his disciples should not be afraid. Why? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see. He tells the disciples that they have little faith. That's the nature of his rebuke. Now, that might surprise us. Because when the disciples saw danger, what did they think? Let's get Jesus to help us. They think Jesus can help them in the middle of a storm. That sounds like they've got immense faith in Jesus, right? Why does Jesus rebuke them in this way? Well, I think we get the answer when we remember where it was that Jesus last talked about people having little faith. Back in chapter 6, Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking about anxiety. And he says to the disciples, do not be anxious about your life. And then Jesus gives some reasons why his people don't need to be anxious. He says, look at the birds of the air. 
your heavenly Father feeds them, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Those of little faith are people who are consumed by worry, who panic in the face of concerns about life or property, who forget the truth that God is sovereign and that God exercises immense providential care for his people. Friends, nothing will happen to us that God has not permitted, and God will faithfully provide for his people's needs. God has sovereignly demarcated the length of our lives, and nothing can change that. Now, when I tell you that, that is not a call to foolhardiness and risky behavior. We shouldn't go bungee jumping without a cord because God will protect me. Okay, that's not the idea. But the idea is this. Faith remembers that God is sovereign over, that God is involved in, and that God is at work through every situation we encounter. He has not abandoned us. He will never leave us or forsake us, so we don't need to panic. We can face the hardships of this life with confidence in God and his power and his purposes. And so while the disciples do demonstrate confidence in Jesus here, they do it in a larger context in which they have totally forgotten God's sovereignty and his control over this situation. Beyond that, if the disciples have any clue that Jesus is the Messiah, they should realize God isn't going to let his long-promised Messiah drown in this crazy storm, right? They have allowed the danger of their situation to cause them to forget what they should have known about God. So Jesus rebukes them. But having rebuked the disciples, now Jesus turns to the storm. Verse 26. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Picture this in your mind, right? There's this massive storm, these huge waves, this howling wind. And Jesus gets up on the boat and he speaks just a word. And what happens? There was a great calm. And this isn't some gradual calming. No, instantly the storm, the storm ceases. Instantly the waves subside. Instantly the lake becomes calm again. It's an amazing wonder. Imagine seeing that. You would be in total awe. Things like that don't just happen, do they? Even if you had seen Jesus touch someone and heal their fever or whatnot, this was different. Seeing him speak to the weather and it immediately obeys him, it would leave you asking the same question the disciples ask in verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? They thought Jesus could help them in this storm somehow, but they didn't expect that. It shocked them, and it made them wonder, who is Jesus? Well, the disciples don't immediately know the answer, but if they had spent some time thinking about the scripture, which they would have heard regularly in the synagogue, maybe they would have drawn the correct conclusion. Because what Jesus does here is closely related to several passages from the Old Testament. For example, in Job 38, God says about the creation that he has shut in the sea with doors and prescribed limits for it and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Or the Psalms say, Psalm 65, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. 
Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or the passage we heard earlier today in Psalm 107. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. In the Old Testament, who is it that stops the storm? Who is it that calms the waves? It's God. And yet here we see Jesus doing what the Old Testament tells us only God can do. It's just like what we saw last week when we looked at Jesus' favorite self-description of himself, this term, the Son of Man. We saw in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a figure who comes on the clouds. That's language in the Old Testament that only ever describes God. But Jesus does what God can do, what only God can do. And Jesus, by his merest word, has total authority over the natural world. And so, friends, in times of natural disaster, like that winter storm we had a few months ago, or in the midst of hurricane season, or in the midst of this pandemic, or just in the midst of a life marked by sickness and aging and death, we can have great confidence in the Father who is sovereign over all things, who providentially cares for us, who has promised to provide for his people and work out all things for us according to his good plan and purposes. And we can have great confidence in Jesus who wields the full authority and power of the Father, who loves us so much that he died for us, and who is often willing to deliver us through dangerous circumstances when we cry to him for help, when we are people of little faith. Friends, we can trust our triune God. Again, this is not a call to foolhardiness, but it is a call to faith, not to panic, but to pray and to trust, because Jesus has authority over the natural world. Come now to our second point, in which we see that Jesus has absolute authority over the supernatural world. All right, so the storm ends, and the boat reaches its destination on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And on the eastern region, or the eastern side of the sea, was a region called the Decapolis, which is Greek for ten cities. Because this region was dominated by ten major cities, although there were some other smaller towns in it as well. Now, what sets the Decapolis apart from every other place, practically, that Jesus visits in the Gospels is this. The Decapolis was Gentile territory. Okay, so Jesus here is no longer among the Jews. And that might surprise us, because we may know that there are passages in which Jesus says, I only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We'll see those passages in chapter 10 and chapter 15. So we might think, well, Jesus is only interested in ministering to Jews. But that's not correct. We saw from the very earliest verses in this whole book that Jesus has not just come to save Israelites, he has come to save Gentiles too. And here for the first time, we see Jesus dealing with Gentiles in Gentile territory. Verse 28. And when Jesus came to the other side, he was in the country of the Gadarenes. The area to which Jesus has come is connected to one of the ten major cities in this region called Gadara. Now, if you read Mark and Luke, it, we, we get a little bit more information here. It seems that this took place near a small town in this region, which was called Gerasa. And it is here on the eastern side of the lake, in Gentile country, that Jesus gets out of the boat. And what happens? Verse 28, two demon-possessed men met him. The idea of the demonic is very foreign to our materialistic, psychologized culture. 
because people in our culture today imagine that science and philosophy and psychology have killed antiquated ideas like a spiritual world or the existence of evil. But in its arrogant claims to total knowledge, our culture has forgotten a truth that was put very succinctly by Shakespeare. There are more things in heaven and on earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We don't know nearly as much as we think we do. And the Bible tells us that just as there is a material world which is governed by the laws of science, there is also an immaterial world. And these material and immaterial worlds were created by the Father through the Son. Colossians 1 says, By Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So not only is there an invisible spiritual world, but that world is filled with life, just like our world is filled with life. The spiritual domain is filled with angels, both holy and fallen. And fallen angels are called demons in the Bible. And demons who belong to the spiritual world are also able to exist in and impact our material world. And they are able to torment and possess people. Now, in our culture, this is the stuff of horror films, right? But I've got to tell you, to be demonized, to be tormented by demons, is much worse than anything you can see on the big screen. And here, Jesus encounters two men who are under demonic oppression. Now, when you read Mark and Luke at this point, they just talk about only one demonized man here. And so we might wonder, why is there this discrepancy? My best answer is this. <clears throat> at the end of this incident in Mark and Luke, one of these demonized men winds up becoming a powerful witness for Jesus. And so Mark and Luke present this incident as being about how Jesus transformed this one man's life. But if the other fellow in this pair didn't really become much of a witness for Jesus, that might explain why Mark and Luke don't talk about him. He doesn't really fit into their story. But Matthew tells us there were, in fact, two demonized men here. And comparing how Matthew, Mark, and Luke report this incident teaches us eight truths about demons and how they oppress people. Number one, we learn in verse 28 that these demonized men were coming out of the tombs. Tombs were considered unclean areas because they were filled with dead. And it's fitting that unclean spirits spend time in unclean places. More than that, they also spend time in unclean people. We never find this verb translated here as demon-possessed used to describe a believer in the New Testament. Now, demons can certainly attack believers, we, we learn in the New Testament, right? Through temptation or deception. But being indwelt by a demon seems to be something that only happens to unbelievers. So demons inhabit unclean people and places. Number two, we learn in verse 28 that these demonized men were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Demons are apparently able to supernaturally invigorate their victims into performing deeds of superhuman strength and are able to compel them into becoming savage and violent. We see that in Mark's description of one of these men. Mark 5 says, No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
We see a similar incident in Acts 19 where one demonized man pummels seven Jewish exorcists. And so the, the demonized men that Jesus encounters here were, were very strong and they were also quite violent. We're told they were so violent that basically travel in their area had been shut down because people didn't want to go near them. Number three, we learn from Mark and Luke that demons torment those whom they inhabit and cause their human victims to harm themselves. Mark 5, 5 says of one of these men, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Demonically oppressed people often engage in self-harm. Here we find self-mutilation. In chapter 17, we'll meet a boy who is demonized, and the demon compels him to throw himself sometimes into water or sometimes into fire, trying to kill himself. Now, understand this. The Bible does not say that if someone is harming themselves, that means they have a demon, but it does tell us if someone is oppressed by a demon, they well may harm themselves. All right. So these two demonized men approach Jesus, and from what we know, they are violent. They are strong. And so we might think they are aggressively going to move against Jesus. But that is not what happens at all. Look at verse 29. What we see instead is these demons are terrified of Jesus. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Here we learn more about demons. Continuing the numbering that we were just using, number four, demons can speak through their victims' mouths. We're told that these men cried out, a verb that often means screaming, but they scream intelligible words. Yet what they say does not reflect human knowledge, rather it reflects the supernatural knowledge of their indwelling demons. And we know that because, number five, the demons call Jesus the Son of God. I like what one medieval commentator had to say about this passage. He says, at the end of the previous miracle, the disciples are left wondering, who is Jesus? And now the demons step forward to tell them, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, so far in this book, Jesus has been identified as the Son of God twice. In chapter 3, by God the Father at Jesus' baptism. And in chapter 4, by Satan at the temptation. Now, the demons also acclaim Jesus as the Son of God. See, while this human world may not know what to make of Jesus, the spiritual world knows exactly who he is. He is the second person of the Godhead, sharing the divine nature with the Father and the Spirit. Now, number six. The demons have an awareness that a time is coming when the Son of God will judge them and cast them into eternal torment. That's why these powerful demons are in terror when they see Jesus. That's why they say basically, Jesus, we don't want anything to do with you. Because they know a day is coming when they will have to stand before Jesus. When he will consign them to eternal fire. And seeing Jesus here, the demons are afraid because they think, well, this isn't the final judgment. What are you doing here already? It's not time yet. Have you come to torment us in advance of final judgment? We'll come back to that in a minute. But there's also a seventh truth here that we learn from Mark and Luke who tell us in Mark 5, 9, Jesus asked the demonized man, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Friends, it's possible for one person to be inhabited by more than one demon. Jesus will tell us this again in chapter 12. 
that at least one of these two men Jesus is dealing with had an entire legion of demons in him. But even though they are many, and even though they are mighty, when they see Jesus, they are terrified because they don't want to face torment. Luke 5.31, they say to Jesus, Don't cast us into the abyss, which is apparently a holding cell of torment for fallen angels who are awaiting hell. They don't want to go to the abyss. They want to stay in this world. But they know Jesus isn't going to let them continue in tormenting these two men. And so we read in Matthew 8.30, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Now remember, we're in Gentile territory, so it's not surprising there's a herd of pigs nearby. And Mark tells us this herd had about 2,000 pigs in it. And the demons say to Jesus, If you throw us out of these men, please let us go in the pigs. And this shows us an eighth truth about demons. Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus seems to indicate that demons want to occupy a living, embodied, physical host. So if these demons lose their human hosts, they want to find another living, embodied host, so they ask for the pigs. Now Jesus grants their request, verse 32, And he said to them, Go. So they came out of the men and went into the pigs. Again, we see unclean spirits entering something else unclean. This time not unclean people, but unclean animals. And what happens when the legion of demons descends into the herd of pigs? The same thing that happens when a demon enters any living being. Self-destruction. Verse 32, And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. But Jesus has liberated these two men from oppression. And as I said earlier, one of these two men becomes a very important witness for Jesus, according to Mark and Luke. He asks Jesus, can I follow you? Can I become your disciple? But instead, Jesus gives him a different assignment. He says in Mark 5, 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is different than what we saw at the beginning of this chapter. Remember Jesus healed a leper at the beginning of chapter 8? And when he healed him, he said, don't talk about this healing except to the priests. Jesus didn't want the leper going around telling stories, stirring up Jewish crowds with messianic expectations. That would make his ministry more difficult. But here in Gentile territory, <clears throat> where there were no expectations of a Messiah, Jesus does want the news to spread far and wide that he has come to set the captives free. And so here Jesus sends out the first missionary who will prepare the way for Gentile conversions all over the place. But while this fellow who was liberated had a right response to Jesus, we find a very different response from the nearby townsfolk. And now for the first time in this book, Jesus is rejected. Verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. These herdsmen were not the owners of the pigs. They were hired hands. And having seen the sudden destruction of this flock that it was their job to take care of, they figured they'd better go and tell their bosses and tell them how it wasn't their fault. So they go into town and they blame Jesus. Jesus killed your pigs because he healed those demon-possessed guys. Now, you'd think the townsfolk would be grateful. 
After all, Jesus has solved a menace in the community. Jesus has reduced the threat of violence in the neighborhood. But he doesn't get a reaction of gratitude. Verse 34, And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The townsfolk come out not to say thank you to Jesus. They come out in fear because they think he's foreign, he's powerful, he's dangerous. Please leave our area, Jesus. Please go home. All right, now what do I want us to see here? Well, I could emphasize these two reactions to Jesus, one of service and one of rejection. But Matthew doesn't talk about one of these men becoming a missionary. That's not his point here. What Matthew wants us to see here is Jesus' total authority over this situation. Jesus has authority not just over the natural world, but over the supernatural world. And we see that in the way these powerful demons are afraid of Jesus, in the way they ask Jesus, can we go into the pigs? They can't act outside of Jesus' permission. And when Jesus says, but one word, go, they go. Friends, Jesus is greater than the demonic. And in this, again, we see that Jesus does what God does. Because in the Old Testament, we find that it is God who has total authority over the spiritual realm, including over evil spiritual beings. You may remember the book of Job. When Satan wants to torment Job, twice God puts limits on what Satan can do. God limits his power. Or in Judges 9, 1 Samuel 16, God sends evil spirits to torment his adversaries. Even though the demons rebel against God, when God says, you go torment this evildoer, they obey. Because God has total authority over the spiritual realm. And in the same way, by his sheer will and his smallest word, Jesus has total authority over the spiritual realm as well. All right, what does this mean for us? Well, two things, I think. First, although demons are certainly powerful and antagonistic, the people of God do not have to live in dread of them. Not because we are powerful, but because we know the one who is all-powerful. But second, I think we need to remember that power over demons is vested in Jesus and not in us. We're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. But for now, I would point you to Jude verse 9, where we read about an angelic battle between the mighty archangel Michael and Satan himself. And we read in Jude 9 that when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. We're told that this mighty archangel did not personally rebuke Satan because Jude says that to do so would, for some reason, have been blasphemous. I don't think we can fully understand why that is. But what we're told is that instead of personally rebuking Satan, Michael prayed that God would rebuke Satan. And Jude brings this up because in the church he's writing to, there are false teachers going around saying, we've got power to command and judge demons. Just like there are false teachers in our day who make that same claim. But Jude says if a holy archangel doesn't dare to do that, neither should we. Instead, friends, we should turn spiritual warfare matters over to God and ask Him to handle them. When spiritual attack comes, and it will, Ephesians 6 says, we are to stand firm, emulating the moral character of God, living righteously, living by faith, wielding the scriptures. That's how we defend ourselves. But we are also to pray. 
Because in the end it is God, it is Jesus who has total authority over the spiritual realm. It is he who defends us, and he will if we ask him. So friends, while we have very powerful spiritual enemies who want to destroy us, we don't need to despair. Because as 1 John 4 says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All right, so we've seen Jesus has authority over the natural world. Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. Come now to our last point, in which we see that Jesus has absolute authority over guilt and forgiveness. Jesus is asked to leave the Decapolis, and so he goes. Matthew 9.1 says, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. He returns to his home base, Capernaum. Now, Jesus had left Capernaum to get away from the large crowds. But as he returns, what does he find? Mark's gospel says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. The crowd is still there, waiting right where he left them. But at this point, Matthew decides not to continue his story chronologically. Remember, we've said before, he is arranging his presentation of Jesus' life topically. And now Matthew inserts an account of another miracle that Jesus performed, which is thematically similar to the other miracles we've looked at today but which Mark and Luke tell us actually happened much earlier in Jesus' ministry. Matthew presents this miracle here, though, because it also shows us that Jesus wields the authority of God himself. The account begins in Matthew 9, 2. And behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, this is a famous and a well-loved incident. This may be my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Um, but as with the exorcism we just looked at, again, we find more detail about this incident in the other Gospels than we find in Matthew. So Mark and Luke tell us that while he was in Capernaum, Jesus was inside a house preaching. And Mark 2 says, And many were gathered at the door, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. So again, there's a big crowd gathered around Jesus. There's no social distancing here, right? The house is jam-packed. And some men come, and they're carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, wanting to see Jesus. But they figure out they can't get to Jesus because there's just so many people in the way. So Mark 2, 4 says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So somehow these guys, they're really determined, they get on the roof of the house where Jesus is, they tear a hole in the roof, they get some ropes, and they lower their buddy down in front of Jesus. Matthew doesn't include these details because he's trying to get to his point, but I'm glad the other gospel writers did because I think they make this scene so memorable. Matthew 9.2 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Now, we're told that Jesus sees their faith, the friend's faith. After all, they've gone to a lot of trouble to get their friend in front of Jesus. You wouldn't do that if you didn't think Jesus could help. Their deeds show their faith, and Jesus sees that. But probably the paralyzed man had some faith too. It would take a lot of faith if you were paralyzed to agree to be carried up on a rooftop and lowered down and through the roof, right? He must have had some faith. Yet Jesus perceives a need to encourage him further. So Jesus tells him to take heart. Maybe Jesus sees his faith is not as strong as his friends, or maybe just that he's scared. But now he's in front of Jesus. What do we expect is going to happen? Well, if we've been paying attention, we've seen Jesus perform all these miracles. 
We expect Jesus will say something and just heal this guy, right? But instead, what does Jesus say? He says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Huh? His sins are forgiven. That's not why he came to Jesus. He came to be healed. Where is his healing? But if we think like that, we've totally lost perspective. Because as Jesus sees this man in front of him who's paralyzed, Jesus sees he has a greater and a truer and a more desperate need than for physical healing. He needs spiritual healing because he is spiritually dead. He is cut off from God who is the source of all life and hope. He needs to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus gives this man the healing that he most urgently needs. And this is a callback to something we read in the very first chapter of this book. When the angel came to see Joseph about Mary's pregnancy, what did he say? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This was Jesus' mission from the beginning. Not to go around healing people, but to save people from their sins. And now for the first time we see Jesus forgiving sin. This is what Jesus' healings point to. They're not an end in themselves. They are a visible representation of the power that Jesus has not just over this material world, but over all spiritual matters as well. Friends, Jesus doesn't just impart physical health and life. He does it spiritually too. And that's why he's come, to reconcile us to the Father. And so Jesus declares this man to be forgiven. But this triggers an immediate response among some who are in the room. Luke tells us that as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. You might remember the same thing happened with John the Baptist, right? As John the Baptist's ministry took off, religious elites, including from Jerusalem, came to check out what was going on. Well, in the same way now, as Jesus' ministry gains popularity, now religious teachers from all over, including Jerusalem, come to see him. And as Jesus declares this man forgiven, the scribes and the Pharisees are horrified. Verse 3, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man, Jesus, is blaspheming. Why do they think Jesus is blaspheming? Well, Mark and Luke clarify their outrage. What they're thinking is this, according to Mark 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is quite a biblical line of thinking. For it is God who says in Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Only God can forgive sin. And that's because in the end, all of our sin is truly an offense against God. Yes, we may wrong other people when we sin, but our truest and greatest wrong in all of our sins is that we have offended the God to whom we owe unconditional, absolute loyalty. That's why David said, against you only have I sinned in Psalm 51. And since our sin is ultimately an offense against God, only God can truly forgive it. Only God can forgive sin. And yet here, Jesus forgives this man's sins. Jesus claims to do what only God can do. And the religious elites see this, and they understand it, and they are horrified by it. They think, this is blasphemy. You're standing in the shoes of God. You're claiming to do what only God can do. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts. So we'll stop there. Now, we might read this and think Jesus has read their minds, but I don't think that's the idea at all. 
Because you don't have to read somebody's mind to know what they're thinking, right? If you make somebody mad, usually you can see it right on their face. And I think Matthew tells us that's what Jesus is doing here. Because in Greek, the verb that's translated knowing is actually the verb that means to see. So just like Jesus saw the paralyzed man's friend's faith by their deeds, Jesus now sees these men's thoughts by their conduct. And Jesus calls them out, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? See, these religious teachers who had heard about Jesus' power and heard that he was working the works that the Messiah would someday work, according to the Old Testament, they have come to listen to him and scope him out. They have sat there and listened to him teach for hours. They may have seen him perform other miracles. Their minds and their hearts should have been open towards Jesus. They should have been pondering who is Jesus like the disciples did. But instead what they're doing is they're sitting waiting for the first chance to write him off as a fraud. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they should have asked Jesus, well, what do you mean by that? Instead, the first thing they do is they can't wait to leap out and accuse him even in their own thinking. That is not legitimate, to sit in the presence of the Savior for hours and be so hard-hearted all you can think about is how can I get you? That's what's blasphemy. And Jesus says it shows that their hearts are evil. But Jesus graciously warns them against this kind of thinking. And now, to once more demonstrate who he is, to put the lie to this idea that he is a blasphemer, and to validate his claim to forgive sins, Jesus asks them a question. Verse 5, he says, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? You don't usually find faith healers claiming to heal paralyzed people, right? Because you can figure out right away whether they have the power or not. Either the guy gets up and walks or he doesn't. You can't fake that. So it's a lot easier to claim to perform an invisible miracle than a visible miracle. Now, make no mistake, forgiving sins is miraculous because the scripture tells us apart from faith in Jesus, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. You are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, whereby children of, by nature we're children of wrath. Without Jesus, we are spiritually dead. We are slaves of sin. We are subject to God's eternal fury. Getting us out of that isn't easy. It takes a miracle to liberate us from spiritual bondage, to impart life to spiritually dead people like us, to satisfy God's righteous anger for all of our sin. That takes a miracle. But it's a miracle we can't see. And so it's easier to claim to perform that kind of invisible miracle than to perform the visible miracle of healing the paralytic. But Jesus says in verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus says if it's easier to claim to forgive sins than to claim to heal the paralytic, here's how you can know I've got the power to forgive sins. And then he heals the paralytic. He commands this paralyzed man to get up and walk. He performs the harder claim. And indeed, verse 7, the paralytic rose and went home. Mark and Luke tell us the paralytic was kind enough to carry his own stretcher out with him. But by healing this man, by performing the more difficult claim, Jesus shows us he has the power to perform the easier claim. If Jesus can heal this man, then Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. And verse 8 says, when the crowds saw it, they were afraid. 
And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The crowds who saw this were terrified because, friends, it is terrifying to behold the power of God. God is not cute and cuddly. God is immense in power. And when that power is displayed on earth, it is awesome. And not like awesome, dude. No, it is fearsome. But here Jesus also displays God's mercy. And so the crowds glorify God because Jesus forgives sin. Jesus owns the religious elites, right? And yet we'll see next week. The religious elites who see this are so hard-hearted, even this doesn't change their perception of Jesus. Today's passage is the first time Jesus runs afoul of them. It won't be the last. But what I want us to see today is this, friends. Jesus has proven who he is by doing what only God can do. Jesus has total power over the natural realm. He has total power over the supernatural realm. He has total power over guilt and forgiveness. And so indeed, we must worship and obey him. If you have never come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, know this. You remain a slave to Satan and sin. You remain under the wrath of God. You are spiritually dead and you cannot improve your own condition. And you are in a worse position than drowning in a boat or being the paralyzed man. You are in danger of hell. And you need to know today, salvation and forgiveness come only through Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14.6, Jesus, God in the flesh who never lies, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So I call on you, friends, turn from your life of sin and turn to Jesus. Trust yourself to Jesus because he has secured forgiveness of sins by dying in our place and by rising from the dead. And he is able and willing to forgive you and save you. But today, if you do know Jesus, then rejoice and be thankful because you have trusted the one who is sovereign over your life, who will take care of you through every situation in this world. You know the one who can deliver you from every spiritual attack. You have trusted the only hope for the forgiveness of sins. And so, friends, it isn't crazy to worship Jesus because Jesus has proven that he is truly God. And so the only reasonable response, the only rational response, the only righteous response is to love and obey and worship Jesus. Let's pray.